Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. Thank you for tuning in to Tuesdays with Andrea podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and today we have special guest, incumbent mayor, Richard Irvin, who is running for re-election for the city of Aurora, second largest city in the state of Illinois and my hometown. Absolutely. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I'm excited to, to talk with you, but one uh, thing before we start out that I don't even know if you know, your mom and I go to the same hairdresser. Oh, wow. I yes. had no idea. <laughs> Shout out to Barb Ramos, House of Hair. <laughs> they keep us looking good. <laughs> little connection sure point there. I'm she's going to be interested to hear the story <laughs> when I tell her later. Yeah. Great little tidbit there. She's fun people. Yeah. You like your mom. I, I think I like you know? her. I'm going I'm to keep her. <laughs> you're you're going to keep her. Yeah. <laughs> Is she so proud of you? Oh, yeah. She's so proud of me. What did she... Um, what was that moment like when you ran for mayor and you won in the city? Well, you know, can I, if, if you don't mind, I'll take you a little bit back. Yeah. You know, my, my history. I, I know you like, you know, to hear I, people's stories. I love stories. So I grew up here in Aurora and my mom raised my brother and I, and we grew up in low-income housing, Aurora Housing Authority, as a matter of fact. Uh, she had me when she was 16, my brother when she was 17, so a young teenage mother. Our father's not in our lives at all. So she was our, our caretaker along with our, our grandparents, my grandma and grandfather. So growing up in that environment, you see uh, just a lot of depressing things. You know, not many people in the community working, not no one really having goals and, and aspirations. And, and not that we wouldn't like to, we all had dreams, but it just didn't seem like it was our reality. And as I got older, you know, gangs and drugs start, you know, one one day we were just kids playing on the playground. The next day we were wearing gang colors in our shoes and talking about beating each other up. And it got more and more serious along the way. At about maybe 16, I just decided I didn't want to be in that gang environment anymore. So I just stopped hanging out with people that I had known since I was five years old. Cause I mm. moved out there when I was five, my brother was four. And I, I joined sports. I became a wrestler and I got a, a whole new group of friends and some of the folks that I grew up with in the neighborhood, the young boys that, that I had known for so many years that I even, most of them still call my brothers to this day, they're my family, you know, resented me for just not being in the neighborhood and not being a part of that environment anymore. Yeah. But like a know, sellout. Yeah. Pop out, kinda, yeah. yeah. My friends on the wrestling team weren't black. They were white kids. So just going through that for a number of years and kind of divorcing myself from that environment, my life was saved. Let me tell you what I mean by that. After I turned 16, I had just got my driver's license. Three days later, I bought a car for $300, $300 from a junkyard. It barely, barely hey, worked. But you had a car. But I had a car and, I, and a driver's license. Do you remember what type it was? It was a Nova. It was an old, you know, I don't 19, even know what type right, of car right, that yeah, is. No, 1970, 72 Nova. It was an old dark blue bullet. So anyway, some couple of friends of mine that I grew up with, you know, that were in gangs, so I was in a gang myself for a short time. Oh, so you joined a gang? Oh, yeah. Because everybody in the neighborhood was. It wasn't, it was just something we did. Was it a form of also security, like a belonging? Yeah, you we need belonged a group. to, yeah. Everybody needs a well, group at some point. The same group that I had been with since I was five years old, playing on the yeah. playgrounds and in the trails and woods behind our house, you know, started joining the gang. So I wanted to remain in this group. So as part of the group, I became a gang member as well. But it's not like the gangs today. It was different. I saw it kind of spring into reality. So it was cool, kind of, yeah. back then to be in a gang and wear these colors. It didn't get dangerous till till later, you know. Matter of fact, I was driving down the street and a couple of friends of mine, there were five of us in the car, myself, my brother, Kenny, a kid by the name of Billy, uh, Mike uh, and Lamar. And, and I say all those names because every single one of those people, even my brother, Kenny, ended up going to prison for something later, for something, every single one of them. That was the reality of my in my neighborhood. It was just a matter of time before, you know, we'd all go to prison. Just a matter of time. Yeah. So we were driving down the street and uh, back then, you know, Latinos and African-Americans didn't necessarily get along with each other. That, they were this opposite gangs, you know, mm -hmm. there was Latinos versus the African-Americans. And 
it shouldn't be that way. And it's not, you know, and I don't ever look at it like that anymore. And but I, I do remember that time, even when I was, gr- yeah. Do you remember that time? Yeah. So, you know, we're driving down the street on the east side of Aurora near where my grandparents lived uh, on Grand Boulevard and a Spanish kid on a bike was riding on the side of the road. So one of the guys, Billy said, pull over, you know, let's talk to this kid. And I was like, no, we're not pulling over. And uh, right as Billy was like, pull over, he started yelling. This kid jumped off his bike and pointed a gun at us as we drove down the street. So I immediately slammed on the brakes and went in reverse as, as fast as I could. You know, and again, I had only got my license three days before, so I'm hitting mailboxes, you know, some time the way I, I turned myself around and I drove out into Hill Avenue off of Summit and uh, got in a car accident. And that's kind of what saved us. So everybody got out and ran, you know, my car that I had just gotten three days. Ruined. Totaled, totaled. And I went to the hospital just for a little whiplash, but everybody scattered. So uh, the very next day, you know, those same people went out in a car driving in some other teenager's car that uh, their mom had let them use. And Billy shot and killed a kid. We were 16 years old. Did you see it? I did not. I was not in the car because I, I was still upset that my yeah. car had gotten, you know, totaled next day. I wasn't going out uh, driving little, anymore. I was still a little shaken. Yeah. You know, didn't want to be in a car. Uh, Billy shot and killed. And I didn't, and I found out later that he had a gun on himself that night when he told me to pull over and was planning on shooting that kid at that bike. But for the fact that I got in that car accident and drove away, I would have been an accessory to that. And that's kind of what woke me up and said, this, this isn't fun anymore. This isn't something I need to be doing. This isn't, you know, I, I don't care who these the people that I grew up from, from when I was five years old, I'm just not going to be in that environment anymore. That's when I, you know, joined sports and got out of the whole gang life altogether. And as a matter of fact, every single person in that car, went to prison at some point for something later uh, in their teenage lives or early, early adult lives. So after I finished high school and I was terrible in high school, matter of fact, my average grade was a C minus. Really? Oh, average grade was a C minus. I got some D's. This gives hope to people who are terrible in high school and they're- Oh, I, oh I was terrible. Like why? Why well, were I, you, know, you like that? I wasn't focused. I didn't realize the value of education. You know, I didn't think it was important back then because what, what was I going to do with it, you know? I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school, mm. let alone go on to college. And, and yeah. whatnot. so what saved me was going to the military. So I went to the military and I learned discipline and direction. And when I got out, I used my benefits, GI Bill and college fund to go to college. Mm. And that's what started everything off. You know, I, I found a college, Robert Morris College. That was only a two-year college at the time. It became a four-year university later. Mm-hmm. And I stayed there, got my four-year degree, decided I wanted to be a lawyer, recognized that I was much more intelligent than I had been told. And I had realized that uh, if I just applied myself and put forth effort that I could actually get an A, you know, and I, and I got all A's. In my first uh, two years there, I got a 4.0. Every class I had, I got an A. And it, it made me feel good. The more I achieved and the more success, the more I wanted, you know. So I left for a while and became an auditor in Naperville at Travelers Insurance Company. Then I decided I wanted to go back and get more education. I went back and finished my four-year degree. I got two Bs though, my second time. It was <laughs> micro and macroeconomics. So <laughs> I, I still don't understand that. So I left with a, a 3.91 GPA instead of a 4.0. I'm still a little salty but about I mean, that's that. That's a great GPA for college. <laughs> but I'm still, I'm still salty about them two Bs. So then I decided, you know, once I started achieving, I was like, there's nothing I can't do. You know, when I was younger, I always had this gift to gab, you know, and, and make arguments, even with adults. And people would tell me, kid, you should be a lawyer. But it was just something they said in jest, yeah. not anything that was real. When you did know? you start believing it? I started believing it after college. I would start getting A's on everything and acing everything. And I thought, you know, there's nothing I can't do if I just put my mind to it. So when I first got to college, I thought I was going to work to get a B average. It was my goal. I said, I know I was terrible in high school, but I'm so much more disciplined now. I've been in the military. I'm going to work so hard to get a B. And I got a B on my first test, a B plus, as a matter of fact. And my teacher, Vern Sims, African-American lady, pulled me aside and said, you know, this B is good, but I think you can do better. I believe in you is what she told me. She said, I believe in you. So I want you to get an A on your next test. And I got one and it felt good. So she believed in me. Then I began to believe in myself. Mm-hmm. And once I began to believe in myself, then I began to achieve and say that the sky's the limits. And I decided I want to be a lawyer. I decided I want to be a prosecutor, assistant state's attorney. I became one. I wanted to own my own law practice. I did a block down the street from where I grew up in low-income housing, the same exact street. Why Detroit. prosecutor? Well, I, because I wanted to get into politics. 
So I wanted to learn both sides. I knew that I would eventually become a defense attorney. So I wanted to learn the prosecutor side first before I became a defense attorney, which I did. And then I said, I'm going to run for mayor. Now I ran for mayor before and I didn't win the first time, but then I didn't give up. I became an alderman, which I was for 10 years. And then when I had an opportunity to run for mayor and win, here I am, mayor of the city of Aurora, second largest city in the state of Illinois, the first African-American mayor or, or minority of any kind in over 180 years. That's an incredible accomplishment. So congratulations. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And what was that feeling that night? That night. And and funny, you should mention my mom because, of course, she was there. And I I brought her up on the stage with me. And I said, Mom, can you believe that there was a time that you raised my brother and I in in low-income housing? And the goal for me was just to get a job, finish high school and get a job at a factory. Yeah, or to just get a B. Right, or just get a right, <laughs> get right. A C. Get a C. Yeah, right, exactly right, right. Just you just work to be a little bit above average. That was the goal. And then we exceeded that goal. And I saw her as a young man, even though we lived in low-income housing, I saw her get up every morning and go to work. And she instilled that work ethic in me. And she got laid off from her union job a couple of times. And then she'd go out and get two jobs, you know, at the mall. And she worked at a restaurant. You know, she would always work to make sure she provided my, for my brother and I and didn't just rely on the government to, mm-hmm. to provide for us. And I saw that work ethic and she instilled that same work ethic in me. Mm. And so that night when you won, mm-hmm. how did you feel? What did you it what was, it was, say? it was surreal. You know, I mean, there's video on YouTube still this day with her jumping around and screaming and asking, like, what, is this for real? It, it didn't seem real. I mean, almost that same feeling. I remember when I graduated from law school and she said, is this real? You know, or when I got accepted, you know, <laughs> to law school, <laughs> said, right? Is this real? I graduated. Then I passed the bar. Is this real? I became a lawyer and got a job as a prosecutor and then owned my own law practice. Like, is this real? You know, it, it's just the whole lot of, you know, yeah. being mayor, you know, the same thing. I, is this for real? It's for real, for real. It's for real, for real. (laughs) I bet none of your other interviews have to use that for real, for real. (laughs) For real, for real, right. right. (laughs) And so now you're mayor and you're leading the city and we've had a a crazy four years. We've had had a rough time over the last couple of years. I mean, from Pratt, our mass shooting. Henry Pratt. You know, where unfortunately five workers in the city of Aurora lost their life to their, a fellow worker that decided he wanted to bring a gun to work. He was disgruntled and, and killed people. Five police officers shot seriously where, you know, they were hanging on for, for their lives. One that lost an eye. Mm-hmm. And just having to deal with being thrust on the national stage and joining so many cities around the country who were dealing with that same, you know, unfortunate and evil circumstance and, and just being put in a position where it was up to me and my team to give us hope that there's that we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. We're going to remain mm-hmm. strong, Aurora strong. We're we're going to make it out of this, and we're not going to let a terrorist, local terrorist, to determine our future and how we're going to going to react. Nor know? live in fear. Or live in fear. Exactly right. And uh, you know we got through that, and then a year later, we got COVID, which is a pandemic that affected the whole world where our country just came to a screeching halt. That includes our city, where everything stopped. You know, our stores that we rely on for revenue so we can pay our police officers and firemen closed. Mm -hmm. You know, our theaters and entertainment that we rely on closed. Everything that we've known just stopped and then on pause. But the whole time, we still have these employees, these police and firemen that need to be paid and these city workers and I had to balance all that. How do we survive? Mm. And then in the middle of that, there was a social unrest because of the murder of George Floyd. And it, even though that was three states away, that, that, that it affected us here, right here locally. Mm. You know, it affected the whole country. Rock the, the nation. Rock the nation. You know, I mean, even outside of internationally, you know, there were people that were protesting. But here in this country, they protested throughout this nation. And it showed up on the doorsteps of city of Aurora. Mm -hmm. And uh, I watched as this people that turned into looters destroyed this downtown that we worked so hard over the last four years to build. And I just saw it as drones flew over and and we were able to watch some of the activity on cameras. They burned up police cars and destroyed businesses and just wrecked what we worked so hard to build. Now, were you in support of the protest? Now, as I won't lie to you, I, I was absolutely conflicted you know, as an African-American man, I, I recognize just like in the 60s, unless there is 
protest, unless there's disruption to our, our normal, regular way of thinking, change never occurs ever, unless there's some type of, of disruption, yeah. you know? So people protesting and saying they don't like the way something is going, I, I, I have to appreciate it. I mean, I'm in government. People criticize me all the time and protest decisions that I, that I make. Maybe not on that level where they're, you know, marching in the street, but there's always some type of disagreement or protest. So I always agree with folks having their First Amendment right to speak out, especially against their feelings of government. But when those protests turn bad and turn into riots, I do not support that at all. So although I recognize the value and the importance of the protest, the riots, I was, you know, totally opposed and against Right. When it starts hurting your businesses, your mom and pop stores and friends who are business owners and they have to start boarding up and it becomes real when it hits your backyard and starts destroying your property. And I'm not saying yours as in you own it, but ours as a collective that feels different. It hits different. Yeah, Exactly right. And and I will, I felt, I feel like Roars is, is my responsibility as, as the leader, you know, as the mayor. So it hit me personally and affected my heart. So in one sense, I recognize why people are protesting and not just to George Floyd and every other African-American that has been senselessly killed after that, but it has to be peaceful protest. Like Dr. King marched, made sure that it was peaceful and it, it was not peaceful. And the problem is many of the people that were protesting and doing the looting and, just, and causing destruction weren't even from Aurora. Mm. They took advantage of a circumstance and drove in the city. We saw the cars come off the expressway, you know, and people get out of vehicles with bats and and bricks and gallons of what we determined were gasoline to to cause this damage. And likewise, what we saw as citizens removed from the government leadership front is how quickly your city, it's it's a home, it's a town that you love and you grew up in, and then you see army vehicles and helicopters and it becomes real. And one day you're like, it it became, it became extremely real and disheartening in in just 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we recovered from that quickly, similar to how we recovered from Pratt. And we'll never, we'll never forget what happened to those five souls that, that aren't with us and those five police officers. But we made ourselves strong and said, we're going to overcome this. You know, we're, we're going to recover and we did the same from the riots. We said, instead of having people arguing, you know, or protesting in the streets, let's get them in a room and talk about what change we really need to influence, what we really need to do to affect change and to make people feel that their voices are being heard. They're feeling equal and there's an equal playing field. And we created the Change Initiative, which is a community helping Aurora's necessary growth and empowerment. Mm-hmm. And from that initiative, we heard the community. They said they wanted body cams for our police officers. We got body cams. They said they wanted a civilian review board. We got a civilian review board. And, uh, and, and we showed our community other things that Aurora Police Department had already been doing that surpassed so many other departments throughout the state. And people just didn't know. But as government, we have to grow. We have to always work, look to be better than we are. We are not beyond reproach. We are not beyond question. We just need to know from our community what direction they would like to see us go in. And then we asked that question and we got those answers based on taking people off the streets and marching mm-hmm. and, and getting them in rooms to hear what the issues were and how we could address those issues. So is the change initiative evolving? Is it ongoing? Absolutely. It started out focusing on the police department based on the issues that we had dealt with over the summer with rioting and looting and the marching. But we decided that this initiative is something that we should talk about throughout the whole city of Aurora you know, in the mayor's office and our government process totally. We want transparency. We want openness. We want to let our community know that we as local government are here for you. Mm -hmm. That's why we exist. I believe it was Thomas Jefferson that said, the care of people's lives and their happiness must be the first and only legitimate objective of good government. And that's what I prescribe to, you know, we are here to be good government for our people, for our community, for our residents of the city of Aurora. I can't speak for any other city. I can't speak for our suburbs. I can't speak for Chicago, the largest city in in the state. But what I can say is here in Aurora, as long as I'm mayor, we'll always be looking out for the interest of our community and looking at what's the best interest for the the greatest number of people. Mm -hmm. Now we're at this phase where you're uh, running for re-election. Yes. 
What do you feel is the most pressing issue going forward? Well, I, I think the issues going forward are ones that I framed four years ago when I ran the first time. Economic development, uh, education, and public safety. Simple as that. And whether I'm mayor or somebody else, that those are going to be the th- three things that anyone has to focus on if they truly want to see Aurora successful. But I believe that I'm going to be mayor and I'm hoping that this is the case. And I'm sure my opponents think the same, but I have a, a track record over the last four years that show that what I said four years ago, economic development, we've got, done economic development in every single part of the city. You can't look at a part of the city of Aurora and say that there's not some development going on. We've done more development in the last four years than this city have seen in the last 40 years, the last four generations. Buildings that have sat empty for 40 and 70 years are now back online. I'm loving what I'm seeing with downtown Aurora. Absolutely. I'm loving that. You with know, the restaurants too exactly and the outdoor right. seating. Exactly right. And, and that's what we have to do. And it just doesn't stop downtown. If you go to the far east side, you see at the Fox Valley Mall and the, re, the redevelopment and the reimagining of how Fox Valley Malls and malls are dying all over the country, but not here in Aurora because we came up with a new idea and a way to make it work. We've got a Chinese developer that, that just supplanted a Chinatown in the city of Aurora, Pacifica Square. Oh, I, we went there. Yeah, did you like it? What'd yeah, we loved it. <laughs> and, this is, and that's just the first phase. Wait we loved till, it. Wait till you get to the second phase. It's, it's going to be amazing. Then if we go to the far west side, you know, we've got these big box stores that have sat empty for, for years, like Cosmopolitan, which was an old yeah. Lowe's. I thought that, I thought Cosmopolitan was a horrible idea. Now it's, it's, a, it's got a great idea of a, a national company in there, Factor 75, that's been bought out by an international company, HelloFresh, and they're doing great work. Hired 250 people, Aurorans, right out of the box. You know, so then we fill Cub Foods with Lindsay Windows. Uh, Hobby Lobby is filled. It's going to be Mega Fun Park. So there's there's so much that we've got going on here in the city of Aurora. And then, oh, right downtown Aurora, off of downtown, the old Copley Hospital sat empty and, and dilapidated and ruining this community for a quarter of a century, a quarter of a century, 300,000 square feet of a development uh, when the hospital moved, you know, out over to Ogden. Uh, so now this hospital, no one knew what to do with it for all these years, but now it's being currently redeveloped for uh, senior living, mm-hmm. adults with disabilities. There's going to be uh, medical services out there in a medical desert in that area for 25 years, a pharmacy. And East Aurora School District is finally bringing all of its services under one roof and they're going to have their district offices out there as well. So, I mean, there's not a part of Aurora that hasn't seen economic development. Now, would you say economic development is the first and pressing priority? Well, economic development helps a lot of things because the more economic development you have, the more jobs you have, the more tax base you have, which means it takes the onus off of the homeowner like you, you know, to, to foot the whole bill. So jobs, strong tax base, a strong economy, you know, it makes a city alive, restaurants, bars, it feeds on itself. It's like a synergy. Mm -hmm. It's like a domino effect. You knock down one domino, all the dominoes fall behind it. Now, then I go to education. Now, Aurora, the city of Aurora, unlike the city of Chicago, we don't have control over our education. Matter of fact, we have six different school districts in the city of Aurora. Yeah. But I recognize the value of education now. But why do you say we don't have control over it? Well, because they have their own government entity. They have their own chairman. They have their own board members. They vote and get taxes directly allocated to them. They don't rely on the city. We do not have control over their destiny whatsoever. But what we have done in the last four years, we partnered with them to say, look, let's ensure your success because people moving out of a city based on the success of education. So if we don't partner and ensure your success, no one's going to want to move to Aurora. So we created the uh, Education Commission. The first thing I did, Education Commission, bringing all these school districts, all our colleges and universities, all our private schools together to talk about what we can do to ensure that all of our young people, no matter where they live in the city of Aurora, had the same educational opportunity. And it's been working amazing. Mm -hmm. And then we created the Youth Council which gives our young people a voice in the community. So we hear what they have to say about their future and how they want to see education in the city of Aurora. So, you know, it's been working well. Then I said safety. That's the third one. That's the third one. No one wants to move to a city that has gang banging, drug dealing, drive by shooting. The image that Aurora had so many years past because, you know, we were in the top 10 per capita in the United States, one of the most violent cities. We got rid of that. We dispelled that. But 
if we don't continue to check it, it could always go back in the other direction. We've got to make sure we have community policing. We've got to make sure we have youth programs for our kids so they're off the streets and not in mischief and crime. We've got to make sure our community feels empowered to take back their community and take ownership of their community and make sure bad things don't go on on their block or their street or their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So all these, it's, it's like a, you know, it's almost like a formula that you put together. Once you put these things together, develop economic development, education, and, and public safety, it's a formula for success. Let's take public safety, for instance, yes. and starting with the youth, perhaps giving them something to do, building more youth mentorship and internship programs. What are some of your solutions that you well, can actively implement that you're thinking of? Well, let me tell you what we did. So there was an uptick in, in crime in a particular neighborhood in, in Aurora. Are we talking we, recent or? Uh, a year ago. Okay. Before COVID. Okay. So what we did, we immediately went out there and said, no, 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 no. I personally went out there myself. We had community meetings with everybody in the neighborhood. Took the community police officers out there, took all my community outreach staff out there. And we said, we're about to address, address this issue. We identified 30 mentoring groups. We only knew of five in the city of Aurora. We identified 30 that could help our young people. And we immediately deployed them out to the streets. We immediately engaged our community-oriented police officers, those are our, our beat cops that are walking around the neighborhood to canvas the neighborhood, identify people that are the problem people, work with our neighbors so the neighbors could help the police identify the problem properties and, and immediately act on how to address it and how to shut it down. This ties into the schools a little bit. We worked in the schools like communities and school programs to ensure we had after school programs to where there weren't kids just kind of wandering around doing nothing after school. They could be in these programs. Mm -hmm. And we strengthened up our community outreach. We have a community services department and under that department, we have what's called community outreach personnel. We got them out there to create new community organizations and to shore up our community organizations to get more volunteers from the neighborhoods to say, look, if you love your neighborhood and you want to see it prosper and you want to see it good, we need you to participate in these community groups that helps you. And we and we got so much participation. Meaning mentorship programs. No, mentorship programs are for our young people. These are community organizations that meet in their neighborhoods, just like your neighborhood here. You would meet with other community members like you and you guys would talk about issues on how to improve your neighborhood, okay. which could be, you know, do we want, how do we ensure that people don't litter? Something as simple as that, or, you know, in more serious neighborhoods, how do we make sure there's not prostitutes standing on the street? Whatever the issue is, we come up with a solution. It's called problem oriented policing. Mm -hmm. We uh, see a problem and, uh, and address it proactively before it becomes more serious. Okay, but then that term itself, problem-oriented policing, we're not talking about the police, right? We're not talking about police. But we're then just, that term, don't you think that that's confusing? And then it, also something that most people will take a step back from? All right, so when it's just a, a term of art. So when you say <laughs> police, the first thing you think is black and white. Yeah. You know, black and white, a black and white car, black and white police officer. But police- Well, I'm thinking about the term in terms of, of a minority community. It's not an embraced term. Uh, right. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Right. Well, yeah, I, well, this term was made up by people a whole lot smarter than me, yeah. you know, and, and it's just, but a they're term. probably right, right. But it's problem oriented policing simply just means proactively coming up with solutions before they become real problems. Okay. <laughs> and like I said, I didn't make it up. Right, that right. Is, but, it's POP. We call it pop. That sounds uh, a whole lot. That sounds like a whole lot, a whole lot nicer. Yeah. Can we just implement some pop over here? Yeah. You think you're having a soda or Coca-Cola or something like that. You okay. Know? But what you're saying is these local community councils, yes. in essence, are yes. uh, being empowered to make decisions for their community with the support of local government behind Exactly them. right. Exactly. I, I mean, it could be something as serious. We're going to plant flowers by the stop signs on every street corner to make our neighborhood prettier or whatever it is, we work with them to come up with these ideas and help implement those solutions. Mm -hmm. And how has that been embraced? Well, let me just say, I started these, these ideas back when I was a community-based prosecutor, when I worked for Kane County under the Weed and Seed program. And that was back when we had almost 30 murders a year. In 2012, we were down to zero murders a year. And we're the second largest city in the state, over 200,000 people. And other than Pratt, which, you know, uh, affected our, our, our numbers. We've always had five and under murders in the city of Aurora. And a lot of those are domestic. We can't really control that. But as far as gang activity and gang relation, we've suppressed that almost to nothing, except for after COVID. Since people have been sitting around in the house and people have lost their jobs, there's been an uptick around the country and we are experiencing it here in Aurora as well. But again, we are pivoting 
and addressing it head on. We're not waiting for it to get worse and spiral out of control. As soon as there's a problem, we address it. And if we think there's going to be a problem, we get out and do proactive solution problem solving. Mm -hmm. The point of it is, is to empower our community to take control of their own neighborhoods and their own destiny. We've seen an uptick in crime. And I think the pandemic and kids are home. They don't have the programs. They don't have school like they used to. They're not in person. They don't even see their friends. Can't yeah. go to the mall like right. like you did before. So there is very little outlet right there now is, there for, is that, for them. And so there's been an uptick. What are those plans to address that? Well, the reality is this pandemic is not going to last forever. And, you know, if uh, based on all the experts and scientists and doctors that are out there, you know, hopefully we'll be back as close to back to normal as possible by fall of this year. But until then, what, what are we doing? You know, again, we're engaging these outreach programs and mentoring programs and making sure that they're in the community. I, you know, I won't lie to you because of COVID and the shutdown, you know, our Fox Valley mall was shut down. That's million dollars of income. The city gets every year. Our outlet mall, Chicago Prime outlet mall shut down million dollars of income. We get every year. Our casino shut down dark millions of dollars of income that we get every year. You know, our Paramount theater and arts and entertainment still not open millions of dollars of income. So our budget is struggling. Now we balanced our budget and we balanced every four years I've been mayor. But based to balance, we had to make a lot of cuts called a decrements, you know, reduce the services that we provide to our residents. So we are struggling for money. So we're, we're really re relying on the federal relief bill that we're looking for the president to sign so we can get the support that we need, which will bring about $35 million to the city of Aurora. And we could get back to doing what we need to do to make, make sure we keep our community safe. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the vaccination program that you've been doing and okay. how is that going and what are your plans to ramp that up? All right. So when you know, these three vaccines came online, Moderna, Pfizer and uh, uh, Johnson & Johnson, we were promised that uh, the federal government would, with the new president, start overseeing some of these programs and then you know kick it down to the governors and the governors would kick it down to the counties and then we would eventually start immunizing all of our residents. Well- as you know, it hasn't worked out the way it's been planned. And although there's an assurance that we'll have enough vaccines in June to vaccinate every American, having the vaccine itself and getting the vaccines into people's arms are two totally different things. So what we did here in Aurora locally, we said, look, we, we don't want to wait for any federal government or state government or county government to determine whether or not our residents get vaccinated. I said, we're going to have to take the bull, the horns in our, in our own hands. We're going to have to take the ball and run with it. We have to determine our own destiny here. The only way to do that is to get doses of vaccines. I said, well, how do we do that? Well, we, let's call some of our partners, both our uh, health department partners, as well as our private partners, OSCO, Drug, Walgreens, whoever might have access to this vaccine and say, look, we're Aurora, we're the second largest city in the state. Why don't you come use some of your vaccine here? You're giving it to people for free anyway. We've got 200,000 people, you know, 100,000 adults. Why don't we set it up and start working out of Aurora? And we were lucky enough to get our first set of vaccines from VNA, which we deployed in the minority community, uh, African-American community first, and then the Latino community coming up uh, next week, uh, because those are the communities that are underserved with the vaccine. Less than 3% of all the vaccines given in both Kane County and DuPage County totaling about 250 doses, less than 3% of that is African-American. And can you explain why African-American and Latinos are being well, distributed to first? Okay, so it's not being distributed to first. What it's doing is, so let me back up. Yeah. Of the 250 doses that have been given out in DuPage and Kane County, only less than 3% of that is African-American and less than 4% of that is Latino. So this tells me a number of things. One, access. And two, hesitancy, meaning they don't trust. They don't trust the vaccine. <laughs> they don't trust the vaccine. <laughs> and then those that do trust don't have access. So what we had to do is we have to dispel the fear, you know, and make people feel comfortable. So let's have these events. In each event, we're going to vaccinate 750 people. But it's not about those 750 vaccines because that's a small, tiny number. It's about using that as a media press conference to make our community feel comfortable. So we had 
you know, many of our leaders, 30, 40, 50 of our leaders and their families and everybody that is in the know come up and take these vaccines so they can start spreading the word throughout the community that these vaccines are safe. There should be no hesitancy. That's the purpose of those, not to vaccinate, you know, the African-American or Latino community first, but to make them feel comfortable so they get vaccinated on the same level as our white counterparts. So that's what those two. So the one that we had last Tuesday uh, called Black Vax and the one they're going to have next Thursday called Latin Vax, those are to make our communities feel comfortable. So now once our communities feel comfortable taking this, and that was partnerships with the VNA, Visiting Nurse Association, then we have the larger vaccine events like we had yesterday, Osco Drug. We made a partnership with Osco Drug. They bought 2,400 doses. And guess what? We saw African-Americans in line. We saw Latinos in line. We saw white people in line. We saw Asian people in line because there's that comfort level now. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And because Aurora is 41% Latino, we got to get a stronger comfort level in the Latino community as well. So that's where we're having that event next next Thursday with 750 doses, with all our leaders, our, our our priests from the Catholic Church, our pastors, anyone that's a leader in the Latino community. So our community can see that it's okay to take this vaccine and, and there's no hesitancy. So there's an age limit though, right? Age 65? Well, there's three categories where you're able to take this vaccine. It's A, B, and C. So the first one is 65 and older. The second one is based on your occupation. If you are a essential worker, And the third one is if you have a medical condition. So if you fall into any of those categories set by the state, that's not set by me, it's set by the state and federal, the state. If you fall into one of those categories, then you can come take it. You could be 22 years old and if you're a central worker, you could take it. Or you could be 22 years old and if you have a medical condition, you can take it. You know, if it falls in the category. Just go get in line. Well, no, you have to sign up for it because (laughs) we have 200,000 people, 100,000 adults. You know, we don't have enough for everybody yet. So we plan on doing these mass Aurora events every week. So the first one was yesterday, 2,400 doses. And uh, the next one will be this coming up Saturday with another 2,000 doses. And we, and that's with our Wall uh, Greens partner. So we're going to partner with whoever the heck we can who has vaccines, and we're going to bring them to Aurora and say, we want you to vaccinate our residents. Have you gotten vaccinated? I have not yet. And there's, there's a reason why, because I don't fall into one of those categories yet. Okay. And because as a leader, I feel like I should get all my people vaccinated first, and I should be probably one of the last ones. Don't you think vaccinated. the mayor should get it, though? Like, they should probably just qualify I would, all, I probably all the people would, you I probably would fall into an essential worker. Yeah. But, you know, again, I, I don't want to take a, a, a dose from somebody who might need it. I've already been, I've already had COVID-19. That's true. You had it you on know, the I was I was having it on the onset and it was terrible. And I don't want anybody to experience what I experienced. So I likely still have antibodies. You know, I haven't gotten sick again. So I, I want everybody to take it. I don't want to take a dose from anybody that might actually need it. Someone that's over 65 or 70 or 80 years old or somebody with an underlying medical condition, mm-hmm. you know, or essential worker that works at a restaurant and comes in contact with people every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do come in contact with people, but uh, you know, I've been working to make sure I wear my mask and wa- use hand sanitizer and protect myself and whatnot. So I'll, I'll be okay. There'll, next month or so, I'm sure there'll be vaccines for everyone and I'll be able to, you know, get, get one myself. But until then, I want to make sure everybody else stands in line before I do. But you hope to take it. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it's an, it's not a matter of hesitancy to take it. It's just a matter of leadership in essence. Leadership and I don't fall into one of those categories. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Uh, I've heard the term strong mayor mm-hmm. reference to you strong a lot. Mayor, yes. What does that mean to you and why is that attached to you? Well, it's not attached to me as much as attached to the city of Aurora and our former government. Our former government uh, in the 70s determined that they wanted a strong mayor former government, which means the mayor is the CEO top executive in the city of Aurora. That means I'm the boss of everybody. In other governments, you have strong council governments um, where the city council uh, is the strong decision maker and they usually have what's called a city manager. City manager manages the city. In this case, I would be considered, you know, the you know city manager and I make the decisions to run the government. I'm the top executive in the city. Now, I have a strong team of folk, you know, that, that fill all the roles in a that a weak mayor might have, but it, the buck stops with me. The decision-making is, is with me. In a, a weak mayor, former government, the decision-making would be mostly with the city manager. And that mayor normally has the same exact vote as a, an alderman. 
who do you report to? Like the, the people. The I report people. to the to the, the voters. Other than the voters, I report to no one. Mm-hmm. What do you feel is your biggest opportunity when we're talking about reelection? In which areas might you say um, you can improve on? I can tell you this: we still have big plans in place that need to be executed over the next four years. Unfortunately, you know this is government. And the wheels of government grind slowly. Mm-hmm. So although we've accomplished more in four years and the city's seen in 40 years, it's still taken a while. And there's so many plans we have to do development on our riverfront, capitalize on our riverfront property to determine what's going to happen with the casino mm-hmm. in the future so we can get back up to getting our, our, our revenue cut of $17 million versus the under $7 million that we get now. There's so many more things to do to finish the disparity study. And the purpose of that is so we can have an MBE and WBE program right now. We have no program to, even though with our Latino population being 41% and African-American being about 10%, it's about 51% of the population, which will make the majority of the population. We don't have any type of ordinance that says that a certain number of portion of our contracts given out by the city have to go to minority contractors or women contractors or disabled uh or adults or veterans. And there's a lot of people who say that the way that we distribute contracts in the city are not equitable, not only to minorities or women, but just there isn't a wider group of people. So there's not a lot, um, a lot of competition. No, that's, that's not that. Well, it, well, let me so, just, so let, there's criticism of that. Right, What's right. your take? Well, anyone that criticizes doesn't actually know our procurement process. That means that once we have, let's say a, a project, a street project needs to be done. We put it out to the world for people to bid on. No one's just given a contract. You have to bid on it and we have to accept the lowest bidder. And is the RFP public? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Everything is public. It's transparency. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's nothing that you can't go into right now, you know, and say, I want that information. I want a FOIA, Freedom Information Act request and get, you know, the information on what we've done and how we make it public. Absolutely. Uh, and so where does that come from? I, I know you've heard it. The pain oh, no, no, no. My, I, oh, no, no, no. Oh, my opponents. Because <laughs> they're my opponents. Let me tell you why. And I understand. They've got to say bad things about me. They've got to make people believe that, you know, we're doing something wrong so they can justify why they're running. Otherwise, why the heck would they be running? If they agree that everything's going good and, you know, I'm doing great things in the city of world, why would they need to step up? So it's just their own um, belief, but they, but if 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 that were true, if they were pay to play, um, then there would be charges. That's illegal. There'd be some type of charges. There'd be some type of of suit filed against the city. There are no charges. There are no suits filed against the city. There's nothing going on other than my opponent saying it because it it benefits them to say that. Mm-hmm. And let me just say this, you know, for before people start lo- lodging those complaints that there's pay to play, they should recognize that. You know, this, this city government, you know, isn't just me. It's set up with 1,300 employees that work for the city, many of them that work in procurement and the finance department. You know, they work hard every day to ensure that everything is above board and there's transparency and that things are done right. They work hard every day. I have a person that, that works in procurement alone, her and her team members, that every day push things back and say, you know, nope, nope we got to get more bids because we've got to make sure it's fair. we got to make... But, the average person doesn't know that because they're not in finance working. All they see is, oh, this person got the contract. Well, how do you know that that person didn't have the lowest bid? You don't know that because you're just making assumptions. Yeah. But understand the process, understand. And it's a long, you know, difficult city government. You know, we have a $450 million budget. We have $1.4 billion in assets, $1.1 billion in, in liabilities, bills, you know, 800000 a million of that is retirement and pensions. So it's like a living organism, this government, you know, and anyone that says, oh, that I see this and because I see it, it must be true without knowing how the whole machine works. They just don't understand municipal government. Mm-hmm. How would you bring opposing sides together? Right. Right now there's factions of people who support one candidate and another in April 7th. By doing good work. And that that's this isn't the first time. I, this was the same thing when I ran, you know, four years ago. We brought people together by doing good work. And they saw that Richard Irvin and the Irvin administration, regardless of, you know, any political silliness that, that may have taken place during the campaign, we're going to do what's right for Aurora. We're going to do get the job done. Simple as that. What core values lead you and drive you as you 
lead the city, lead yourself, and are an example. What, what core values do you stand by? Two core values that my grandfather taught me when I was, you know, just a, just a young boy. Two that, that I stand by and I will for the rest of my life. Treat everybody like you want to be treated. Simple as that. Treat every human being, every person you come in contact, treat them like you want to be treated. And everything you do, do well. When you think about people who changed your life, pivotal people in your life, who've had an influence, who changed their trajectory. And we talked about the military being an aspect that changed your trajectory. Mm -hmm. And who are those people? If you can name three people. Well, my grandfather, of course, that, you know, taught me the value of being a, a man and having pride in yourself and recognizing that that's all you have. At the end of the day, that's all you got. You know, your pride and the, the respect that you have for yourself. Uh, and, and if you have that pride and respect in yourself, you won't do things that will shine a negative light on you. My grandfather, you know, the, the one that taught me everything you do, do well and treat everybody like you want to be treated no matter the circumstance. And uh, the military, which isn't a person, I guess, Uncle Sam. Uncle <laughs> Sam. <laughs> you can call him Uncle Sam. They gave me the, the, the foundation of respect for myself, um, you know, uh, just perseverance, overcoming, you know, obstacles. I went to war for this country. I, I, I served in the Gulf War, um, Desert Steel, then Desert Storm. And, uh, you know, what I saw, you know, in Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War, you know, the, in this third world country, you know, the death, destruction, despair. I knew that I wanted to work the rest of my life to ensure that stuff like that didn't happen. I didn't want to do it there because that's not where I'm from. But we had enough of it back here that I could work on it. So I wanted to work on. And then the third person, I would say, and I'm going to come back to the most important person, but the third person that actually changed the trajectory, I would say was Miss Sims at, uh, at Robert Morris College when she told me that she believed in me that I could be better than that B, that, that B plus that I got. But the overall person I would have to say is my mom because she's always been there. She was a teenager when she had me and my brother, you know, not in, in reality, I guess, not much older than me, you know, as far as a kid, you think of her as she's a kid, you know, I, my teenager's a kid, he's 19, he's still a kid. And even still, she instilled that work ethic and just that perseverance that no matter what circumstance you're in, you can be what you want to be. You just have to dream big. I just had to learn how to dream big. And me and my family didn't know how to dream big back then. Dreaming big was having a, a good paying factory job that you could work at for 40 years and, you know, have a good pension. Mm -hmm. That was dreaming big back then because that's, you know, I just learned how to dream bigger. How does it make you feel knowing that you've broken that ceiling for your son? Right. When you think about your son, do you have a daughter as yeah. well? Mm -hmm. and, and your daughter, what do you want them to say about you? You know, I guess that um, even though my son's a teenager and, you know, he don't really like me right now. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I know the feeling. <laughs> Every parent. Right, 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 right. Um, and uh, my daughter, you know, she's in the military. She's in the Navy. And she's saying things that, that I swear sound just like me. And I say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Where'd you hear that again? Where'd you hear that from? She says, okay, okay. You know, so I guess I just want them to recognize that, because of, you know, my hard work and my sacrifices that they can do whatever they want and I will not let them fail. What keeps you up at night? What do you worry about the most or what presents itself as an obstacle that even you're worried about achieving? Because we all have that. You know, I guess that I'm not, doing enough. I'm not pushing myself hard enough. I'm not, I'm not being the best I can, I can be, I, I guess, you know, I, and it, which doesn't keep me up at night, but it, it, it helps me to always stay focused and always work harder for the residents of Aurora and always do better, you know, as mayor, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not about a competition with the guy that was mayor before me or the guy, the mayor before that. It's almost like a competition with Between myself. Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's an honest answer. And it's something I think we can all relate to. Am I enough? Am I doing enough? Did I do everything I can do? Can I do more? I remember um, after I was elected mayor, well, I guess when I swore in, I swore in on in May of uh, 2017. I swore in on a Tuesday. The next day and Wednesday, I went to Springfield. So I never even got to go to my office until I got back from Springfield two days, two days later. 
And when I walked, I, I parked my car in the spot that belonged to the mayor. And I'm like, wait, I felt like I was doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I was walking up to the city hall and I was like, oh my God. I think I might have jumped up and kicked my heels with nobody watching, you know, like, oh, my God, I'm there, I'm there. Did you do the selfie? Right, right. No, I'm not really a selfie kind of guy. So, you know, I I walk in and my name is on the door and I didn't expect it to be changed that quick. You know, I expect, you know, this government's going to take off. My name's already on the door. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's my name on the door. And I go in the office and I sit in there. I just sit for a few minutes like, oh, my gosh. I'm the mayor of the second largest city in the state of Illinois. And it took me a while to get used to being in that skin. It took me about almost a year to get used to being in that skin. But uh, once I got used to it and I started coming up with ideas on how to make us better and how to get us, you know, head us down a more positive path, a more successful path and take us to the next level, it, it all fell into place. And I felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. Where do you want to take this? So, so let's say you're up for reelection, you win, mayor for another four years. What after that? You know, I, I've dreamt about being mayor for the last 20 years almost, you know, so I haven't made any plans after that other than to do a damn good job at this. Mm. That's what my you, plan. What are you most grateful for? And that's the closing question. I'm most grateful for the fact that I got to see my own dream come alive and I'm seeing it every single day. And not many people can say that. And many people have dreams. And I'm talking about crazy dreams that seem unrealistic when you dream them. But I dreamed this crazy dream years ago and it's real. And I'm experiencing it right now. Mm. Well, I wish you luck on your upcoming election. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.